Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus County. Today, my guest is an old friend of mine, Mitch Sullivan. Mitch and I go back, I don't know, uh, 18, 19 years, something like that. And Mitch is the founder of copywritingforrecruiters.com. He's really built that category up because there is nobody out there focusing on trying to sell the job. So Mitch, would you mind giving us maybe 60 to 90 seconds on your history, please? So people okay. understand. Right. I've been in recruitment like forever, 33 years. For the last 20 years, uh, I've only worked retained, which we won't get into today. And for the last 10, I've been coaching. I kind of eased away from recruiting gradually. So I still work on a few jobs per year. I, th- I think it's good to keep my hand in. It helps my credibility. But most of my time these days is spent training and coaching and waving the flag for better copy in, in, in the world of recruitment. World of so, what, what are the blind spots that you see employers apply or you know, f- falling into the trap of when they're recruiting and they're trying to advertise their jobs? Okay. Like the blind spots typically uh, that companies have is that they, the big one, and I think it's mostly subconscious, is that, well, we're a great company. We know we're a great company. We've got a job. Surely people want to work for a great company. So they'll, they'll put an ad out that talks only about themselves and what they want. And they think they're doing the community at large a favor by having that vacancy and then get frustrated that they don't get the quality of responses that they wanted or expected. So they'll put it out to agencies. Then that brings them another blind spot, which is they assume that the agencies are going to be much better at selling that job than they are. And most of the time they're not. They just got more distribution coverage than the client. Um, because they've got more tools, so they'll they'll pump out the same rhetoric, but to a wider audience. If they're specialists, they'll have databases or radars of people that they're they're working with. But the assumption is that that recruiter is going to a sell their job really well, which they're not, and they're going to tap into people that aren't actively looking, which a lot of the time they're not. Some some do that well, but a lot don't, even though they say they do, and so. It just continues. And, 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 and as each blind spot looms, the problem gets bigger and bigger. The third one, probably, and I think you asked for four, but I'm, I can only give you three for the time being, is that the uh, requirements for the candidate are way too long, way, way too long. In fact, something I picked up from you years ago, I think it was you, and that I've used ever since, is to head off the hiring manager. When I'm having the conversation with them about a job that they've asked me to fill, I'll say to him or her, So what are the two or three must-have non-negotiable skills, knowledge, or experience that this person is going to need to have to be able to do this job? And you know what happens? They give me two or three. They don't give me 12. And they don't start talking about degrees and, you know, must have a winning personality and all that bullshit. (laughs) Part of the problem here, I think, is that people don't build the recruitment process from the job to be done by the person filling the job. No one goes into the recruitment process because they want to fill a vacancy. They want to hire someone who succeeds in the job, gets better over time, and stays. What they don't want is someone who's just going to fail in the role or is going to turn over. And my big beef with the whole recruitment process is that hiring managers see it um, pretty much as an imposition. It's an interruption to their real job. There is nothing... Nothing more important than hiring well, because if you hire well, you eliminate 95 to 99% of your management problems downstream. 
why bother trying to unpick those symptoms that you've created because you started the process poorly because you didn't think? So my next question is, what is the deep thought that hiring managers need to put in before they put finger to keyboard and knock out their job advert? Okay, I think the first thing they need to identify, they need to think very deeply about is what it is they want to buy. Because mm. yeah, <laughs> it's, it's both selling and buying, and that's partly what makes it so tricky for many people, even, even practitioners. So what do I need? What skills, knowledge, and experience do I need as a minimum to, for someone to be able to do this job? Because all the other stuff that makes people highly effective, as you've, again, said often, is... You know, what is it? Attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs. attitudes, behaviors, beliefs, motivation. Is yeah. So, so, one. yeah. Willingness. And again, most of this stuff you never look for. What most so people. My, are, well, yeah, my what, point what, what was that they, 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 they've got to dismiss all the soft stuff for now. Saying, like, what do they need to know? What's the basic criteria that is for? What's the minimum they need to know? And be very, very accurate because a lot of the time they overpitch. Yeah, they, they, they're asking in the, in the job posting for someone who, if they met that criteria, would be way too good for them, way too good, and, and will be gone in six months. This is really important. Constraint is really important. You cannot have more than six to eight must-haves, and frankly, eight is pushing the limit. If no. you have even that, even that many, what you will do, well, yeah, the, the three must-haves, I would say, would come in attitude. They, no, they no, 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 no. You're, you're misreading what I've said. Right. Forget <laughs> the soft skills. You can't, you can't fish for or measure soft skills in an ad. You just can't. Well, it's, you can't, it's very hard and you can't do it that well. Right? Okay. The, the ad, the job posting has got to only talk about what they know, what knowledge they've got, what experience they've got. The other stuff happens later in the process. So all I'm saying is to, to be able to take the first step of being able to attract people to a job vacancy they need to fill is identify what they need mechanically. What's the mechanical data? What do they need to know? And then once they've got that, yeah, it's all right. Where are they likely to be doing this job right now? What types of sectors? What types of companies? Yeah. And then get a sense of how big the candidate pool might be. And LinkedIn can give you a, a, a wet thumbed kind of view of that. Yeah. To, to, mm-hmm. to depending on the sector, obviously, or the job. And then once they've done that and that, you could do that in an hour easily and then once you've got that information say right what do i need to say to be able to get one of these types of people to leave their job to come and work for me and just start writing it down getting it out of your head onto the page and and literally why would somebody want to do this job and i often say to people imagine you're at a party and you're working, you've got a job vacancy and it's causing a bit of a problem. You're not getting much of a response. And at this party, you meet someone who, during the course of casual conversation, you find out does this job. Yeah, And you find out a bit more about them and you're thinking to yourself, wow, this person sounds perfect. So you say, I happen to be, you know, you tell them that you're looking to fill a job. And this other person looks at you and says, OK, tell me why you think I'd be interested. And whatever you would say, write it down just that's it yeah and 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 that that will hopefully head people off you know rattling off cliches how, like a fantastic company and we've how do you make sure that you don't build your own biases in because what, what i've seen time and time again is founders in particular think that the people that they hire 
have the same drive, motivation, uh, you know, perspective. And as a result, they miscast or they uh, they mistarget what will attract the other person. And so then at the interview, the person says, oh, yes, I'm money motivated or yes, I have a will to win. But it's, it's crock of shit because they just get, you know, my, what, one of my favorite jokes is, you know, what do you call uh, what of a conversation between two adults where both sides are lying through their teeth, a job interview. And it, it shouldn't be that. The lack of transparency that you see in adverts and then the interviews and the one-way in, interrogation that managers go through uh, in the recruitment process does everything to tell the candidate, we don't give a fuck about what you want. Why? Why is it managers think that that is going to sell a job? Honestly, I don't know particularly sales managers, because they should know better, or sales leaders. But yeah, anyway, yeah. It, 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 it baffles me, though, because the, the evidence is clear. It doesn't work. All you end up doing well, is churning through lots of mediocre well, candidates and compromising. Well, here's the thing. Things are never as black and white as they look. Sometimes it does work, and that's the thing, yeah? Because sometimes, you know, the... the the one great advantage recruitment advertising has over other forms of advertising is that it only needs to find one customer. And mm. that's both a blessing and a curse. It can be a curse in so much as people think, well, let's just put something out. We might get lucky. And sometimes they do because the right person sees it on the right day. Their boss might have pissed them off or they got passed over for a promotion or they happen to have been made redundant, you know, whatever. Or they happen to be unemployed, but they just happen to have the right skills. And they they and and then the job will get filled. And that's where sometimes the notion that recruitment is easy comes from, because sometimes it is dead easy, but other times it's a nightmare. So yeah, it, there's some complexity there because sometimes it'll work, probably 10 to 15% of the time. But then people think, well, it worked last time. Why isn't it working this time? And then it's the job board's fault or LinkedIn's fault or the agency's fault. Okay. So when the manager has done that deep thinking and they've identified, they've honed it down to the three for the advert, and they then start putting pen to paper. Obviously, you've got to try and transfer emotion in this as well, because unless you can create the excitement, the, the draw uh, for them, you're going to struggle. So, I, no, I disagree slightly because what you're okay. saying here, I think is where you were heading is you need to be a decent writer. No, I think what you need is a good process so that you can write so that your audience responds to your message. Okay. Because the, the job to be done of an advert is to attract the candidate. If it doesn't do that, you fail. Yeah, it, it, look, a, a job ad is a lead generator. That, that's what it is. It generates leads of candidates for you to talk to and engage with and find out more about and hopefully find one or two that you can take to interview, um, depending on the job. The easiest way to get someone to, to want to read the ad is to tell them how their life might be improved were they to do this job. Right, okay. And so this is personalized. Right away, right, right. from the get-go, not halfway okay. down the ad or at the end, right at the top. Okay, so in terms of examples of you know uh, the type of uh, headline copy that one would drive with there, what is the whiffen? What, what's it? The what's in it for me? Okay. Well, do, you, do you want an example of a headline yeah, for please. sales for a sales Perfect. manager role that I ran years ago? The headline was or the opening sentence: "Still not got that promotion you were promised." <laughs> Lovely. And the ad was talking to senior salespeople 
who felt they were ready for the first management job. Absolutely. Okay. So, yeah. Right. So it's it, typically you're leading with a good question to draw people in. Well, it, it, you're hinting at a benefit, which is, look, this, this, you don't need to be an existing sales manager to, to do this job. And also, it, it's, it's the kind of opening line that will make people want to read the second line, if only out of curiosity. So, you know, the purpose of the headline is to get people to want to keep reading. That's its job. Once it's done that, it's over. And then the rest of the copy then has to start building on that, that promise. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, their first step into management, the training they're going to get, the support they're going to get, what it might lead to with the scope of the challenge, um, how many people they're going to, how big the team will be that they need to build, all of that stuff. Yeah. But presented in you language mm. rather than we language. Yeah. Right. So rather we will give you is you will get. That's that's the simple translation. Well, it's really interesting because psychologically that gives them agency. And if you're frustrated in your current role, part of uh, your frustration is typically because things aren't working out as you'd planned. Yeah, um, or, or, you're, or you're starting to get bored. The challenge is gone. Understood. Okay. So uh, again, the, the language is important. It needs to be focused on the candidate what's in it for them. And that process, the, the journey that they go through as they read the advert, it's you know, effectively long copy. So what are the different stages that the buyer of the advert needs to go through to be, we, 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 the ad we, to be successful? We teach the AIDA formula, which has been the basic DNA of all advertising for about 120 years. We've just repurposed it for, for recruitment. Um, but yeah, all good advertising follows that principle get their attention, build their interest, turn that interest into desire, and then give them a, um, make it easy for them to respond with your call to action. So it's attention, interest, desire, action. Okay, so once you're building on what the role looks like and you know the, the benefit for them, how do you drive that desire? What, what's the next stage? Because it sounds to me like you're already ratcheting up the emotion quite a lot. There. Well, look, assuming that the ad copy is around 300, 350 words, the first 100, 120, 150 or so should be exclusively telling the reader what's in it for them. And then pretty much the second half of the ad is, is what, if they're still reading, if somebody's read halfway down a job ad, chances are going to read the whole thing. And if they read it line by line, they're reading it because they're interested, because it's well written. And it's talking about them because people are most interested in themselves, particularly this early in this process. They don't need another job, but could be open to getting a better one. They'll read job postings, but they'll bail out as soon as it starts to sound like every other job. Once they get to halfway down the ad, then it's the question of turning that interest into desire. The easiest way to do that is to confirm to them that it's a job that they can do. So you just outline very briefly the core role, what its purpose is, and you tell them what they're going to need to have to qualify. Because if somebody reads themselves in the candidate section in the here's what you'll need section that's when interest in my view at least turns into desire because then it's mentally they're saying oh i'm a fit now they're thinking actually i've probably got a good chance of getting an interview because i'm interested it's paying the right money it's in the right place i'm interested sounds good and i'm what they're looking for based on what they've said in the ad right so paying the right money which means you have to be transparent about the salary you have to be transparent about the location. Or at least put a range when it comes to the salary. There's no excuse for not putting a range. Well, you can't claim to be a transparent business that um, you know, trusts their people 
when you don't show the salary, really. Well, most companies probably aren't transparent, are they? No, but in this day and age, is that not going to be a major handicap, given that 70% of the workforce is now Gen Z or millennial? Yeah, it is. It is. But I, there is also there is a counter argument for on occasions why and salary can't be disclosed, particularly okay. if somebody already doing that job in the company right now, for example, or if there's lots of other people doing that same job. It can get complicated, but that, like I said, there's no excuse for not putting a range. Okay, which then points to the fact that culturally they're not a terribly transparent organisation. Well, you, you can address it in the copy. You can, you can just say, look, we've presented a range because, you know, everything is negotiable. There's no, okay. nothing wrong with that, I don't think, anyway. Okay, interesting. Then in terms of the call to action, because I think often that's overdone or overegged, what should the call to action look like and sound like? Okay, assuming it's for a job that is historically tricky to fill, where the majority of the candidates, potential candidates are going to be in jobs, and the majority of those are going to be in jobs they don't need to leave. Where the call to action makes the most mistakes is asking for a CV or a resume. Because if somebody is not actively looking, they probably won't have an up-to-date CV. So if you're insisting on the only way that they can react to this piece of marketing is by saying, by them going home and updating their CV for an hour, there's a pretty good chance you'll lose them. Yeah. And like I said, it only needs one. So if you lose one qualified candidate, it's a tragedy, or at least it is in my world. So if you're going to ask for a CV, and sometimes you have to, because the, the, the platform on which it's appearing, the job board, insists that people can only apply with the CV, just tell the reader, don't worry if your CV is not up to date, just send us what you have. It, it's at least it's a start. Yeah, it's a, yeah, like I said, it's a lead generator. Some of them punch themselves in the face by not making it as easy as possible for the person to reach out and respond. So if it's not the CV, what's a better call to action? Depends on the person. A phone number can work for people in the sales sector for obvious reasons, but a phone number won't work for software engineers because mm -hmm. they're not going to want to pick the phone up, certainly not this early in the process. So yeah, an email would be would be better or, or a WhatsApp, WhatsApp number that they can do something to. Just whatever you think is going to culturally fit that particular category of candidate, should be reflected in the call to action. I, I, I think it's a good idea to give people choice. Anyway, give them two or three. You know, I've seen some recruiters say, look me up on LinkedIn. You know, it's just covering bases, but you just got to make it as easy as possible. Not for me, getting someone to read right to the end of the ad is in itself an accomplishment. And if, you, if you've done that, you've probably produced a pretty good ad, particularly if it's a qualified person who's reading it. And if they get right to the end and still don't respond, well, I, that just blows my mind. I, I just, that, it just, just, that's horrible. Horrible. Okay. But then that's on us and we have to refine yeah. our copy because sure. the, the, the message received is the one that we sent, um, not the one we intended. Okay. So when it comes to working with recruiters, I firmly believe that you should treat your recruiter with a huge amount of love because every candidate that they bring you, should be their best candidates. But if you treat them badly, you won't get their best candidates. So let's talk about how to establish a decent relationship and partnership with your recruiters. Right. When you say your recruiters, are we assuming that the... If you're going outside, yeah, you're, you're right. working with an external agency to help you. I understand that, but are we, are we talking... Because I think one of the big areas, another big blind spot is that 
Hiring managers don't research the recruiter that they might work with. You can learn an awful lot about a recruiter in 20 minutes these days. I mean, and you only have to go to one website. Yeah, it's obviously LinkedIn. Because, you know, if, if, if you're a recruiter not on LinkedIn, there's something wrong somewhere. You can see what they post, what, 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 you know, how good they are, how good they are at attracting candidates, what their ads look like, what their thinking is, what their job history is. You can look at the agency they work for, and the, you know, you know, they rattling out the same cliches as everyone else, or is there something a bit different about? You know, there's a lot you can learn. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't think enough get assessed. But assuming it's a recruiter you've already worked with before and you've got some kind of relationship with, yeah, I totally agree. You have to treat them with a lot of love because they've got other clients that they could send those same candidates to. So you've got to try and find a way to incentivize the recruiter to give you first choice, at least. If you're working contingency, which most of the time they are going to be. So there's no loyalty on the table anywhere from either side. And in return, you can either offer to pay more money or you can offer to respond very, very quickly. And often, actually, that's what recruiters prefer. Quick decisions. Give me feedback straight away. Yes or no. So they can move on. So, yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. And, and most don't do that well. And I've had it done to me. I've had a client do that to me. And I knew what they were doing. And all I could do was just privately clap my hands, you know, because um, anyway, yeah. So what are the kind of questions you should be asking to qualify whether your recruiter is capable of representing your business and selling your job effectively to the right candidates? Okay, a lot depends on the job. If it's a specialist role, a niche role, so something in engineering or software development, Whatever it might be, they need to find a recruiter who understands that job discipline or that sector or both. Okay. And they probably need to have been in that sector for at least five years. Okay. And they need to have not changed jobs every 14 months. Because, you know, in sales and in recruitment, you don't, you know, you're only, you're only starting to really build an effective pipeline after about a year. And if you're leaving after 14 months, there's something's gone wrong somewhere. Yeah, look, I, and and then, and then you, once you've engaged with them and you're you're happy that they've got the knowledge, is then have they got the skill? I'm a bit reticent to go on here because most hiring managers know less than recruiters. <laughs> I'm a bit wary about suggesting how hiring managers qualify their ability to both assess candidates and attract candidates because that's fundamentally all recruitment is. It's attraction and assessment. The client should be better at the assessment part, but the recruiter should be better at the attraction part. So when I was a hiring manager or the recruiter working on behalf of the hiring manager dealing with agencies, I would ask them, how are you going to sell this job? Tell me. What, what? Yeah. And those, none of them gave me the answer I wanted, but those that I thought, yeah, I can see some good intent there. Yeah, that, that those people would give me a little bit more confidence. Well, this is the thing that always baffles me about sales interviews, that um, I've never been to a sales interview where anyone tested my capability of selling, qualifying, asking good questions, whether um, I made them comfortable, whether I actually ended up uh, in an outcome that served both sides. Did they feel like it was an unpleasant experience or did, did they feel safe? This is something that baffles me completely. Interrogating someone about their sales document, their CV, isn't really an interview. Mm. Um, It's not deriving the value that you really need. In the interview process, 
in the development of the interview process. So one, one thing I see is a real paucity of good questions. Mitch, tell me this. Um, when managers are trying to position their job, more often than not in this market, it's crowded, it's competitive. And unless you're with a relatively well-known brand or and in a good location, chances are you will struggle to fill out in provincial uh, locations. You know, I, I was talking to a couple of clients who are out in Norwich and they really struggle. You know, sometimes it takes them a year or two years to fill vacancies. In terms of the way people are thinking, now that the world of collaboration and technology digitization has changed, are you seeing any shift in an appetite for managers to be comfortable working in a hybrid or an entirely distributed environment? Or do they re- are they really still pushing to get people back in? I don't know directly, but just from the noise I see on LinkedIn and social media, is no, I don't see any significant change in that. I think that's become a major, major issue for a lot of people in a lot of jobs, regardless, the ability to do some of that job from home. I've got a client right now where, where geography is, is, is an issue and is going to become a bigger issue as time goes on. So I think you need to get the work from home thing right, because if you can get that right, that can widen your catchment area where you can look for people, which will make should make it easier. The other big area that I think that people that are in a disadvantaged geographical area for whatever reason, might be that they're on the coast or they're in a corner of the country or the state, um, is take some of the money out of your recruiting budget, put it in your training budget. Hmm. So so hire someone for whom that job is a step up, yeah? So they can still be quite knowledgeable, but they're relatively unproven in that job or doing that job at that scale. But give someone a chance, basically and invest money in getting them up to speed in their first three to six months. Right. And so this is where uh, an area that I can speak to. In the first 120 days, a new hire is putting you, the job, the company, the products, the customers, and the decision they've made to walk away from their previous job to this one on probation. And at the moment, Uh, I think the data is suggesting that 30% of new hires leave within 42 days. That onboarding process is so important. You need to help them understand what they need to know by when they need to know it, where they can find it, what the consequences of non-performance are. You need to give them a structure. So in that first 120 days, you set them up to succeed. And it's part of the continuum. And remember, this is a sale like any other. The buyer, the candidate, has a journey that they go through. At some point, they make space for the idea of changing their jobs. Then they start learning about the possibilities. Then they start working out what their options are. Then they start making trade-offs in terms of pay, location, uh, interest, jobs, and so on. And then they have to make their decision. If that experience on first use does not match what's been sold to them, then buyer's remorse sets in. And that's how you end up losing candidates. So you need to plan this whole thing out. And my recommendation is you build the job hiring template from three years out. And what is the job that this person needs to accomplish over three years, two years, one year? What resources will they need? What support will they need? What budget will be needed in order to help them do that? And design all of that. 
so that when this person comes in, there is a clear pathway and they can see their progression. Now, that confirms that this is the right move for someone who is the right fit. And also a a great thing to talk about in the job ad, because if there's one thing that turns on most people, it's the idea of getting input, training, getting being helped to get better at their job. That job, if we're describing a real job here, that job becomes real easy to sell in the right hands, really easy. What we have to remember is there are some fundamental human needs, okay? And those fundamental human needs are built around stuff like certainty, stuff like significance, contribution. And if the job speaks to that uh, and the experience of the interview talks to how they will be uh, able to accomplish and become the person that they want to become. Increasingly, I I can't tell you how many interviews I've done over the last couple of years, where what they're really talking about is what they, uh, how they want to make progress, how they want to see their careers evolve. And having a pathway to do that is such a relief because it gives them certainty and a, a sense that someone has their back. In this day and age, how powerful is that? Yeah, very powerful. Very powerful. Totally agree. So again, an, another thing I would probably build into the advert, and I think I learned this one from you, is why did the previous person leave? If they left with progression, this job has now come up because Betty has now moved on to a management role. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, on that same thing, you, 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 you can use a quote from the person who used to do that job in the ad itself just saying what he or she got from doing that job for two years. You know, there's no better testimonial from a user, which is the person who used to do the job. So, yeah, there are, there are lots of ways, lots of ways into this. That's interesting. I just had a thought. If the, if the outgoing person did a one-minute video on what they loved about the job, how they progressed, how their manager helped them, is that something that would be good to embed? Yeah, look, there are lots of channels. There's lots of ways in which you can present information about a, a job is that is that one minute video going to be enough to get someone to want to send you their cv or oh, possibly not they may have to go through stages it may be that they read a they read a, a, a short ad that sets them up to then go and because what a lot of people will do if they read an ad that they like the sound of probably the next thing most of them will do is go to that company's website so do we drive them to a particular landing page or do we have them yeah, take to a landing page. Again, you're going to be bullied depending on which platform the ad or the piece of content is appearing. You're going to be have certain restrictions. But yeah, if you take them to a page where the person doing the job is is testifying to how how much he or she got from that job, that's just another hurdle cross. But there has to be a call to action in the video. Right. So it sounds like having wide distribution across multiple platforms is key as well. That can also cause the problem that often people will complain about is getting way too many applications. And that's what happens is when you've got great distribution and really bad content. Right. Okay. So that's a trap to avoid. Okay. So what sort of platforms should they be looking at? I'm assuming LinkedIn would be a must. It totally depends on the job what the job is, you know, if it's a white collar sort of mid-level job. For, for the purposes of this audience, they're all likely to be sales, uh, leadership, management, yeah. or marketing. Absolutely. LinkedIn would be 
an obvious place. There will be other places as well. There will be places where these types of people hang out or forums that they get involved in. They can be found and people can observe them. Yeah. Talk to me uh, about the forums. That really interests me and uh, how a manager should be using those. Well, you've got to be careful here. I mean, look, everything's out in the open now. You know, you can look through people's comments on other people's discussions. I mean, it can take a while to get a really good picture. But so I can't remember how we got here. How, how did we get here? Um, well, I'm curious. It, it, it just strikes me that as a manager, I should be doing everything I possibly can to really understand the market in which my candidates and uh, are... Uh, oh, like you were talking about places to, to put the content. Yeah, yeah. It depends on the content, depends on the job. But yeah, that, that there'll, there'll be, there's plenty of places where you can advertise jobs. A lot of companies tend to take the cheap option first. There's lots of free sites out there that get little to no traction. There are some really, really niche specialist sites, and I've used some myself, that are quite expensive, but only that type of person is going to be ever going to that website. So if you've got one application, it will probably be the right one. Well, again, as a manager, you really need to think about what it costs you to go cheap. So what you don't want to be doing is sifting through 400 CVs. Have that done by somebody else or through 400 applications and have uh, your copy and your process help you self-filter those people who will not be suitable for the job. So again, I think one of the things that I've found very helpful is to lead with stuff that will put the wrong people off. I don't agree. I think that's a pretty stupid thing to do in the current market for certain types of jobs. Now, if, okay. it, it, so if, if, if it's for a relatively junior role or one that only where somebody only needs to be semi-qualified in whatever it is, then yes, I agree. If you're anticipating a lot of responses, potentially, that is a good tactic but not for looking for a salesperson, sales manager, any kind of director level role, any kind of engineering role, any role that requires some specialist knowledge. Where the Even if it's a deal breaker? Look, I try it. I, I wouldn't do it. And I'm considered an expert in this. I wouldn't okay. do it. I, I'm willing to take your advice. God knows I know if I, I, I I would do it if I was confident that there was a lot of available people with the skills that I'm looking for out there. Or just a lot of them. But, you know, there are a lot of lorry drivers out there, but nobody can fill lorry driver jobs at the moment. Or maybe there aren't as many lorry drivers as there used to be because of Brexit and one or two other things. But that could work with graduate hires or second jobbers, maybe, where what you're looking for is attitude. Because it doesn't matter what work history they've got, you're just looking for a certain kind of person. Then maybe that could work then. But even then, I would think, seriously about doing that okay fair enough listen to mix not me okay so if you're unsuccessful with your job advert what are the first places you should look in order to try and remedy that look at the responses so is there any correlation between the type of response you're getting that you can trace back to the to the ad copy and also you've got to factor in that if all you did was cut and paste the job description from HR out onto multiple job boards, the majority of people didn't read it. The reason you've got inappropriate applications is because people didn't read the job. They just saw the job title, saw the location, saw the money, and thought, oh, what the hell? I could probably do that job. It's a project management job. I, I manage projects or whatever. So you've got to look in the mirror and say, right, well, where, where could this have gone wrong? Look, look at the response. You've been getting lots of responses from 
you know, people that are wildly inappropriate or from other other countries, then you've made the job unreadable because nobody wanted to read it because job descriptions are long and boring and unpleasant to read. People only read job descriptions once they've decided it's a job they might want to do. They don't read it from the get-go. Why would they? Okay. Okay. What about the relationship between the hiring manager, HR, and the recruiter? What advice would you give to hiring managers there to ensure that you get the outcome that you want without being overburdened or constantly interrupted and that the candidate ends up getting the experience they want so you don't blow it? Because that seems to me to be quite a delicate balance. The easiest answer to that question is for the hiring manager to get more involved. And I appreciate that that's quite a big hill to climb up and try and die on. But that's the pure answer is get more involved. So allow HR or the recruiter to call you and say, look, I've got someone here. I'm not sure about them. Can you have a chat with them for 10 minutes over the phone? In fact, do more phone screens. I think too many people get rejected off the back of a CV that doesn't fully do them justice. And anyone that's a maybe and you're struggling, call them, talk to them. Because then that sort of attitude and motivation and belief and behaviours can start to eke out a little bit. Obviously, all of this is very dependent on the job, but I think hiring managers could get more involved, certainly in in the screening process. Depends who's on their side. If, If their HR team and or internal recruitment team or external agencies know what they're doing, then they shouldn't have to, but a lot don't, particularly when it comes to assessing. I find it hard to assess candidates. And I just learned how to not be scared of contacting the client and say, I'm not sure. What do you think? Uh, Here's their CV. I I spoke with them for 10 minutes the other day. Here's what I found out. What do you think? And I asked them. So yeah, I I think hiring managers should be a little bit more involved. And maybe HR or the recruitment team could build a long list to deliver to the hiring manager. And the hiring manager actually reads the CVs. Now, that's another problem is, you know, where we talked right at the beginning about hiring managers having an apathy towards recruitment, which is very real, by the way. I've seen it when I worked in-house. Um, just got to force them to read the CVs. I would have CVs sat on people's desks for two, three days with some of my clients. And in the end, I, I, I stopped emailing CVs to people. I would literally print it off, put it in my hand, go down the stairs, walk into their office, sit down, put the CV on the desk, say, I think we need to interview this person. Take a look. Let's have a quick chat. Yeah. And some of them didn't like it at first, but we got the job done. So look, the the hiring manager needs to get more involved. They can't just shovel everything off to other people and hope they're going to get the right result. I think that we, we need to have a big rethink in terms of the relationship between recruiters Uh, HR and hiring managers, because recruitment is the single most important job any manager ever has. Um, If you hire the right people, then you say that on LinkedIn for me, Marcus, please. I I do all the time, Mitch. The next uh, job that you have as a manager is to create the conditions so those people can do their best work and become their best, you know, become their best selves in that role. And it's not to do the work for them. It's not to get in their way. Managers should be building their bench. And one of the things I would be looking at in terms of partnering with your recruiters is to have an eye for candidates who would probably be suitable in 12 to 24 months. Yeah. Start building that bench now. 
Totally agree. Most hiring managers, because they don't like recruitment, the brief they give to whoever their external partner or internal partner is, who's going to source people, is, is they, they, they dish out the ideal candidate profile. It's somebody who just literally ticks every box. And as we know, nobody ever does. That starts to hamper the search. But fundamentally, what they're doing is they're looking that the reason they're giving out such a tight, narrow profile is they want to hire someone who doesn't need to be assessed, trained or managed fundamentally because they want their life to be as easy as possible. That's a fool's errand in most cases. I mean, if you if you hire someone who's the finished article, chances are they'll be bored and leave. People need to grow into their role and they need to take ownership of it. If you're spending 8, 10, 12, 16 hours a day at your desk in this job, you better be bloody well enjoying it because it's miserable otherwise. Okay, so one final question then. That's an important takeaway for me. You've got to give people the chance to grow into the job. For me, do you know what? The more I think about that, the more I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a sentiment I've expressed before, but not quite in that way. But it's so important. But, well, and, it's and, lazy management not to. Because if you want the finished article because you're looking for an easy life, that's not your job. Your job is growth. Your job is The problem is, Marcus, a lot of recruiters really struggle to have that kind of conversation with a hiring manager. And I I think part of the problem is that the recruitment industry has created this condition for themselves because they don't stand up to their clients because it has become so commoditized and so crowded. And virtually none of the recruiters that you come across on LinkedIn have any idea about the real moving parts within the businesses that they're going to place these people in. They kind of understand the features and functions of the CV, but they don't understand whose work affects and impacts this person Mm -hmm. and who they impact, what the window to the customer looks like Mm -hmm. uh, for this job, what pressure they're under, the kind of timescales and deadlines and what challenges they're really going to face. And None of this stuff is really thought through. So more often than not, what they don't do, and this galls me, is they simply cut and paste the same job description, use that as the advert for the person they just fired in order to hire someone different who they hope will work out. So when it comes to the exit of a non-performer or even a performer, what advice would you give to the managers to inform their development of the next hire? and the messaging for the next time yeah if you were starting this job tomorrow what would you need what would you want you know did we deliver what you were looking for three years ago what did you like about the job what did you not like what what do you think could be trimmed from the job what do you think could be added to make the job more enjoyable more challenging more rewarding again i'm not an expert on exit interviewing but i've done a few But, but those are great questions and again why wouldn't you ask those questions so you can inform yourself and improve Because your job as a manager is to hire up. Every time you hire someone, you want to hire someone better than the last one, not worse. Why why would you create that rod for your your own back and disrespect the rest of your team by hiring someone mediocre or crap? Totally agree. Okay, Mitch, how can people get hold of you? I live on LinkedIn, apparently, so I'm dead easy to find there. Copywritingforrecruiters.com. People can find me there and contact me via that website. Uh, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Mitch, age 23. Uh, what one choice bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have ignored? Jesus, this, this is a potentially loaded question. I'm, I'm, I've, I've, got to, I've got to just slowly stand away from it and have a think. Um, 
I've said this in an interview before. Um, I've only realized that I've spent my whole life having ADHD and I only discovered that a couple of years ago. And it's kind of put things into a different perspective. With that in mind, because, you know, throughout my 20s and most of my 30s, I was an idiot. I really was. I only, I only started becoming less of an idiot in my 40s. And I kind of like the person I am now. Um, but it just took an awfully long time to get here. And you saw me in some of my idiot phases of my life, actually, because I, I, I was a little bit full on. I, I, um, I was in my idiot phases then as well. I think. Very true. OK, well, no, I'll, <laughs> Thanks I'll for take that. that. Um, <laughs> I think the one thing that I, that I didn't really do properly when I was younger, even though I was in sales, is I didn't make any real effort to put myself in the shoes of the other person. But I mean, to some kind of meaningful level to actually just imagine their situation and, and, and how because of how they were, be it a girlfriend or, or, or a friend or a stranger or a client or a work colleague. Yeah, I um, I pissed off a lot of people. I, I can vouch for that. But so did I. <laughs> so, I did a um, podcast last week with a guy called Rob Morley on ADHD and neurodiversity. You might enjoy that. So I've uh, tagged that in the notes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, one thing that you're struggling with at the moment. There is only one thing I'm struggling at the moment. It's a big thing, which is since the success of copywritingforrecruiters.com, which I launched in 2020, April 2020, off the back of running that course um, in classrooms and training rooms up and down the country for five years, is I'm now having to learn to become an e-commerce business owner because it's, it's all being done online. I need to start automating as much of it as possible, uh, which I'm in the process of doing. It's costing money, it's costing time, it's things that I'm not naturally good at. And it can be quite daunting sometimes, but I'm getting there slowly, but it's slow. Excellent. So what, what are the lessons that you're learning from that? Oh, Jesus. That I'm rubbish at detail, I'm rubbish <laughs> at admin, but it's my business and it's copyright recruiters is responsible for about 80% of my income, if not more these days. And it's absolutely vital. So um but factoring in my ADHD, my work patterns are a little bit intermittent. So I'll, I'll work manically for two hours and then take three hours off. Other times I'll work steadily throughout the day. And then other days I'll take the entire day off and just fuck about in front of the TV. And, and I'm having to learn to manage that because at the moment, much of my business just comes to me. I don't have to work that hard for it. But once I start exporting it outside of the UK and Europe, it's going to get a lot tougher. So um yeah, I wish, wish I was 20 years all younger. the best with that. Thank you. Fantastic. Mitch Sullivan, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone who'd benefit from it. And uh, if you are going to be advertising, then I've been through Mitch's Copywriting for Recruiters program. It's fantastically good, very simple to follow, and highly recommended. If you want to get in touch with me, Marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. If you want to speak to me about coaching or training, there'll be a link in the blurb. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.